Welcome to Plainfield Bible Church. I'm back from fishing. I did come in last week, but we were just in. And somebody, pastor asked me, so when's the fish fry? Well, the people that we fish with don't like to eat fish. They have a, they have a, a, a house right on the lake. They go up all the time, and they don't eat fish. But, you know, they like to catch them. So we threw them all back. So no fish fry. I mean, we could buy fish, and, but I don't know that that would be the same thing. But either way. Glad to be with you again and uh, teaching Sunday school. If you'd bow with me in prayer, we'll start this right. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise your name and glorify you, and you deserve it. As a matter of fact, that's the only reason that we're here, is to praise your name and worship you, to give you the right due that you deserve, to put you in your rightful place, to remind ourselves of who you are and who we are, to understand your majesty and your power and your might, to be in awe of you and fear you, to embrace the grace and love that you've bestowed upon us, to continue to remind ourselves of the gospel, to live out the gospel, and as today as we study this letter, this very small letter uh, written by John to a woman, uh, an unknown woman that we don't know about, but they certainly knew about her then, a reminder of the combination of truth and love and how important those things are. I pray that we can gain understanding from your word today. Enlighten us through the Holy Spirit. Uh, convict us as we hear your word taught, myself first and then as, as those who I'm teaching, and that we take this not just intellectually, but we take it practically and live it out. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the opportunities that you'll be giving us this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So truth and love, if you'll turn to 2 John, that is where we're going to be for two weeks. 2 John is not very large. Pastor joked with me this morning, are you going to get through the first two verses? Yes, I will, because there's not a whole lot in the first two verses. Well, there is, but the first verse in particular, I won't spend much time on. However, there was a temptation to do so, simply because there's a little bit of debate about the first verse. I don't think there's much, so... Uh, I'm going to spend less time than I may have if I had more, you know, two hours, three hours to deal with, but I don't. So we're going to just kind of go through that quickly, but let me just give you a quick breakdown because this is the first time we're looking at Second John coming off of this incredible series that Dave and Isaiah put together in First John, and then Dave Pitcock last week uh, finished it off for us, a wonderful job as well. So that deep and long and, uh, and, and the richness of 1 John, 2 John also has those things, but it's much shorter, and it's probably written around the same time. So 2 John more than likely is written right on the heels of 1 John. In this particular letter, we have it addressed to an individual. Uh, so this is, this is probably a person that is well-known. We certainly know that she's well-known. And this particular individual, and as I read it, you'll see what I mean, um, she has children as well that she's raised in the Lord. Now, here's where the debate comes in, and I, I could have spent some time on this, but I, I, just, I just don't think it's necessarily worthy of it. Some would look at this first verse, and I'm going to read it to you, just the first verse, and then I'll read the whole section I'll cover today. But it says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. So there is some depth there, but right away we've got a, a person mentioned. And as you see on the slide, it's a specific woman. Now here's the debate. Some would say that the woman is the church. 
And the reason for that is because um, we see God referencing the church as a bride in, in other situations. We see uh, personification in that way in other places in Scripture. And then the children are the individual members of the church. Uh, the language lends itself to the opposite of that, though, and I won't dig into that. However, if you look at any commentary on this, they'll present these two particular views, and most commentaries that I have seen and trust, they, they lean towards the fact that this is a real woman. This is an actual woman who is uh, someone who is known who probably sent a letter to John for advice. And so they're her real her real children, and it also would involve the real people that are involved in the church that this woman probably hosts in her home. So this is probably what we're dealing with here. More than likely, this particular woman has asked John for advice. Just imagine, by the way, let me just pause on that for a second. Imagine if you had the opportunity to write the Apostle John a letter, and at this point he's the only apostle left that was an eyewitness to the events that we embrace and trust and hope in. Just think about this. And you could write him a letter, and he'd write one back to you. Can you imagine what that would be like? And yet, if we look at 3 John, and you're thinking, don't get into 3 John. But if you get into 3 John, there's a guy who opposes John. Just think about that. Now imagine that. Imagine the Apostle John, the only eyewitness left, and you're going to oppose him. Imagine the gall and the arrogance there, but that's later. Just imagine this woman and her her desire for advice. And so she looks to John. Now, I'll say this. You do have that opportunity. You even have more opportunity to do that. If you would really like to know what to do, you should ask John. And you should ask Peter. And you should ask Paul. And you should ask every of the 40 uh, authors of of the Bible what you should do and then read what they have to say. So you should do that. And you can do that. As a matter of fact, you have more access to their wisdom and their knowledge, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit, than what this woman did. But that's what we're dealing with now, and here's a kind of an overview of what we're going to see in this letter. This letter is dealing with some very specific things, and it's short, but this is what it's dealing with. The encouragement and commendation of the basic Christian doctrines that we're going to see, truth and love, that they are intertwined and they are necessary to be part of one another, the principles and the pursuit and practice of these biblical truths in your life. So we're going to see that. Uh, This is a very practical letter. This is a very specifically practical letter to an individual, but this extends to every believer, which is why it's in your Bible right now. And then the second piece to this, and we'll see this more next week, this is, I'm going to mention it right off the bat because it is the overriding theme of the book, but we'll see it more next week. The second piece to this is the warning to not misappropriate, misunderstand, or misapply the Christian principle of hospitality and love and kindness. To misapply that, misdirect that, specifically with false teachers who are doing a disservice to the gospel, who are doing things that are hurting the church, and because of your mindset, and it's a good one, to love even your enemies, to be kind to those around you, to love the brethren You've got to be discerning about who that is that is coming into your church and maybe spewing out lies and false th- and, and, and uh, uh, fallacies. So the desire to infiltrate the church, these men uh, that, that were doing that, you've got to be careful about your hospitality to them. So that's kind of what we're going to look at here in Second John for the next two weeks. 
And uh, to start this out, I, I've got a great, great quote here, and I've got a personal connection to this. A few weeks back, I should a few months back, this was in May, many of us went to hear John MacArthur in Cincinnati. Was that May? I think it was May, those of you who were there. Anyway, we had front row seats. We were right on the side. We could see everybody that was in the front row, all the, the big wigs that were usually with John MacArthur, and one of them was Phil Johnson. Many of you know him, hear his commentaries, and uh, uh, he uh, works for Grace for Life. But what I, my personal connection to him is that he was front row. I could see him. I actually made eye contact with him, and he was wearing cowboy boots just like me. So I thought, all right, this guy, he and I have a connection. Here's what he says about this. This is really important. The overriding theme of this book, the, the danger in divorcing, disconnecting truth from love. Okay, this is really important. Listen to his, his kind of commentary on this. You can't divorce truth from love because the, the minute you try to do that, you destroy one or the other. The two are necessarily joined together. So that if you take truth away from the equation of love, it's not love anymore. It's compromise. Think about that. It's compromise. It corrupts the very nature of love because love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Love rejoices in the truth. We're going to look at that here in just a minute. On the other hand, you can't take love away from the truth. That becomes a kind of brutality, some sort of arrogant, angry, rigid fundamentalism. So the Apostle John is telling this woman, keep those two things in balance. You can't forsake truth in the name of love, and you can't forsake love in the name of truth. Very poignant. Very, very, very well thought out. That thought of that concept of those two things balanced correctly. And so he made a quote here. He just loosely quoted 1 Corinthians 13. Let's take a quick look at that. You know this is the love chapter, and well, you should. Here's what it says. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. But this is the part he quoted loosely. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Yeah, so when we think of it this way, we understand that when we truly love people the way Christ would want us to love, and let's just define it, Christ was love, the embodiment of love. Did he embrace everyone's ideas? And everyone's preaching and teaching? No. He didn't rejoice in the way that the Pharisees were presenting his word. He didn't rejoice in that at all. As a matter of fact, he attacked them righteously. So love, the embodiment of love, Christ, he didn't rejoice in wrongdoing. As a matter of fact, what he did, he rejoiced in truth. He then proclaimed truth. We've got to find that balance as well. And I think Phil Johnson does a great job of kind of bringing us around to that. We see again in Romans 1, 32, This is really critical. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because we're going to hit it next week. But Romans 1, you know Romans 1 well. Romans 1 is this, well, let's just call it what it is. It's what we see today, isn't it? It's what we see in our world today. When people detach God from everything, they don't acknowledge the Creator, what are we then given over to? All kinds of debased things. All kinds of sin. It's really important to understand Romans 1 and and the way it's presented and the way Paul presents it. Certainly it was relevant 2,000 years ago, but if, if you can't see it today, you're blind. The fact that the judgment itself is the sin that you, we see co- committed all over the place, the connection Paul makes at the end of this, all of these horrific sexual sins and others that people are given over to because they don't acknowledge the Creator, 
He then brings it back around to us. Look at what Paul says in Romans 1.32, ending that chapter. Though they know God's righteous decree, we know what God says. We understand God's word and how clear it is, no doubt about it. Now, this is all kinds of sin, specifically sexual sin here, but all kinds of sin that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So remember, we're not in a position as Christians to just give a blanket, okay, it's okay, you're covered by grace, God loves you. We're here to warn people, remember, he's making his appeal through us, 2 Corinthians 5 making his appeal through us. It's very critical that we think about this. Ultimately, we see this play out in 2 Thessalonians 2. I would like you to turn here to 2 Thessalonians 2, just because it's a long passage, and I want to break it down for a second. We could get into the weeds here, but it's so practical that I want to bring it to your, to your attention. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Here's why I want to bring this up. Okay, it's, it's, as we just saw in Romans 1, truth and love, okay, The combination of, you know the truth found in God's word, acknowledging the creator, and then being willing to tell people when they're off off the rails. Here's what we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, the context of 2 Thessalonians 2 is the Antichrist. This is the end of all things, at least in our world as we know it, as as we approach this tribulation period. This is the, the revelation of the Antichrist. And he's talking about those who are going to believe into this, believe into the concept, the, the theology, the doctrine of the Antichrist. And here's, notice the connections. I want you to see the connection of truth and love here that we're going to see. So the lawless one is the Antichrist that, that John speaks of. John is the only one that uses that term. Paul here uses a variety of terms. Here he calls him the lawless one. The coming of the lawless one is, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And this is verse 9, sorry, if I didn't tell you. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. And with all wicked deception, for those who are perishing, notice why they're perishing. Because they refuse to love the truth. Love the truth, and so be saved. So as we think back to like Romans 1, people didn't acknowledge the truth. God the Creator didn't acknowledge His Word given to us so freely. So I think about how easy it is to find God's Word in our country today. Just, just think about the access we have to, to Scripture compared to other times in human history, compared to other places in the world today. Think about that in America, as we specifically think about the place we're living in. You don't, you don't love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. That's a pretty heavy statement, by the way. God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. In order that all may be condemned who did not believe what? The truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So you can't just, there's not this willy-nilly going back and forth. This is that Isaiah 5 concept. Remember, woe to those, Isaiah 5, 21. Woe to those who call evil good and and good evil. Woe to those folks. Uh, Darkness, light, light, darkness. You know what Isaiah said to that. God doesn't change. That's still the same. And, And remember, we understand why this happens, 1 Corinthians 1. The word of the cross is folly to those who, are belie- who don't believe. But what is, it, what is it to you? It's the power of God, right? So we understand why this happens, but it has to do with love and truth. Love, loving the truth and the balance of love and truth. I've used this before, but the 11th commandment, you've got to go back a couple months with me, and I know it's small, so I'll read it to you. Vody does a great job of understanding this and giving us a better understanding. Perhaps you're unfamiliar with the 11th commandment. 
thou shalt be nice. Interestingly, this is the only commandment that receives universal acceptance in our culture. Moreover, it's the only commandment whose application most most people are willing to insist upon. Speak up on behalf of the 11th, and you are a true paragon of virtue. The specific application of the 11th commandment tends to apply to religious debate. The idea is that we should not confront people about their religious beliefs, unless, of course, those beliefs are traditional, Protestant, biblical beliefs. Then they're fair game, since those beliefs are inherent violations of the 11th commandment. Yeah, see, love and truth. We don't like to do it, let's be honest. We simply do not like to confront people. In fact, some of us, he's speaking to believers here, would rather be slapped in the face than have to tell people that their worldview is wrong. And isn't that a fact? I've used this quote before several months ago, but isn't that a fact? All right, so back to 2 John 1 through 6. Let me read the whole thing. I've read verse 1 already, but I'll reread it, and then we'll break it down going forward. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. I love that part, and we're going to break that down. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Notice the connections. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So really a lot of great stuff here. So let's, let's go to the elect lady and uh, the elder and the elect lady. So we've talked about this just very briefly already, and again, I don't want to spend too much time on it. Two titles here, the, the elder and the elect lady. I mentioned the elect lady, but let's talk about the elder for a second. John usually references himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Right? In his gospel, that's what we normally hear uh, that title given to John. I think it was Dave or Dave or Isaiah that made mention of all the titles that John has. Uh, one of them is a son of thunder. That's a good one. But he also gives him this, himself this title, the elder. And some think that he uses this title for himself because of his age, uh, maybe because of the authority he was given. But I think the when you really look at this and understand kind of the, the, the word usage here based on the Greek, it's probably because he has a fatherly feel for these people. That he's, he's led them spiritually. And he has, he has a, uh, I would say, a great weight upon, himself, upon him for these people. Uh, much like we do. When you have led someone to Christ or have taught them, and I really feel this, by the way, as a Bible teacher to teenagers. It bothers me. It, it bothers me. Maybe sometimes sinfully because I take it on to myself, but it bothers me when the students that are with me for three years straight seem to be playing that game and then they walk away from it. It hurts. And it, I know you guys feel that. People that you've ministered to, discipled for years, and it's my, it's my profession, but you all know what I mean. People you've spent time in with God's word, you know it's true, but it isn't sticking. And, and sinfully, you can take that on yourself and think, well, that's, I've done something wrong, but that's not how it works. Remember, salvation belongs to the Lord. But you feel it, and I think that's what this is. 
He's the elder. He, he's their father. He believes that he is their spiritual leader, and certainly he would be. To this woman, to the congregation, and, and of course, maybe her specific children, I think that's what we're dealing with here. So again, John uses elect, indicating that this is a true believer. So when we use that word elect, we know what that means here at this church, that this woman has been drawn to the Lord. She has been given the grace that only comes through faith. We've talked about that plenty here. And she is now one of God's chosen children. But she's also been called to her work, as we have too. We'll get to that later. But it also talks about her children here, and we're going to see later that some of them were walking with the Lord. Now, again, could based on how you interpret this, could be some of the some of the people that are in the church, but I think it's specifically some of her kids, indicating as we look down here when he says some, that not all are. And we've talked about that here too. Uh, wasn't that long ago that uh, I did a Sunday school and we were dealing with raising your children in this culture. And uh, one of the more heartbreaking things for parents, and it's one of my greatest fears, is if your children are not walking with the Lord. And we don't always get to have much control over that. And that's tough. And that's hard. And I think this woman probably was dealing with that too. He wouldn't say some unless some weren't. So that's something that we trust the Lord on. This woman who is respected and was doing it right, you've got to leave your children in the hands of the Lord. You do what God calls you to do to be a parent that leads their children, guides their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, but it's in God's hands. All right, truth and love, let's break this down going forward. We see this word, these two words used right off the bat in 1B. It says this in 1B, says, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. So all who know the truth. This isn't just John's opinion. This is the opinion of every believer, because we know the truth and we love it. So go back to that Second Thessalonians passage, remember? What's the opposite of the believer? Those who don't love the truth and so be saved. You don't love it. You know it, but you don't love it. So God gives you over to that, much like we saw in Romans 1. Very similar thing. Kind of going back to 2 John uh, chapter 1, or staying in 2 John chapter 1, John uses the word truth five times. And as we go back to the end of 1 John, he uses it three times in the last couple verses. We saw that last week. That this idea of truth is such a critical piece for us as believers. What really separates us from the non-believers is we embrace the truth. Not our truth, not some truth, not some arbitrary truth, the only truth. We embrace all of it. That's really what marks us as a believer, one of the things that marks us as a believer. And John puts a a real focus on this, not just in this book, but in the previous book. So we see that earlier, we see it here, that this is such an important piece. He ends one book, begins the other book with truth. And by the way, your life should be bookended by truth too. As you come into the, to the world as a believer, the moment you're saved, and I don't mean coming into the world as a baby, but the moment you're saved, your real birth, right? Born from above birth, born again birth, that's all based on truth, isn't it? Because you heard the truth and you were saved. You heard the gospel and that's what saved you. God drew you to, your, to himself, you heard it, you believed, and your life changed. And then when you come to the end of your life, and we've seen people come to the end of their life as believers, what do they embrace then? What is the thing that they hope in? It's truth. Bookends of your life. Bookends for his book as well. But that's what we see. Now, we also see this in his gospel um, that we're going to look at 
I want you to turn to John 17 for the sake of time. I'm going to give you one more slide in 2 John 1, but you go to John 17 as we go there. So John writes, as you go to John 17, and this will help us transition into John 17, John writes that he loves this woman and essentially is unified with this woman in his love for her and his love for the truth. That's the unification principle we're going to see in John 17. Because of the truth of the gospel and the word of God as a whole. He loves that, which prompts him to love people who who follow Christ as well, fellow believers. And he reinforces all of this. All of this, if you think about 1 John 5, 1, that all true believers love fellow believers. We learned that a few weeks ago. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. That's what we learned in 1 John 5, 1, several weeks back. But if you go to John 17, look at how Jesus puts all of this. And of course, John writes that, quoting Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now you're talking about 60-some-odd years later, thinking about it in 2 John and 1 John and kind of putting it together in a practical way. But look at how Jesus puts this. Starting at verse 14, you should be there by now. I have given them your word, Jesus praying to the Father, giving them, talking about his apostles here initially. The world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. Keep them from Satan. But we're here. We've got to be here in this, in this twisted, dying, dark world, lost, broken. They are not of this world just as I'm not of this world. Sanctify them in what? Truth. And what's truth? Your word is truth. Hmm, very interesting. And when we think about this, your word is truth. Sanctification is becoming more like Christ. So that's not just a New Testament process. Remember, back to Leviticus, where we first hear this, God tells his people in Leviticus 11, you be holy because I'm holy. You, you live those lives of holiness because that's who I am. Now, he wasn't talking about salvation here in, in, in Leviticus 11. He was talking about how you live your daily life. And we've spent enough time understanding how the gospel works here, that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not by your works, but those matter to the Lord, and your holiness makes a difference. Sanctification in truth. How do you learn to be more like Christ? His word. It's not that complicated. And then, of course, we know that this comes back around in 1 Peter chapter 1, 15 and 16. He quotes Leviticus 11 and says, Be holy, for I am holy. Talking about sanctification. Okay, that's in verse 17. 18. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Oh, that's the critical piece. Okay, so he doesn't want you to be taken out of this world yet. There will be a day when that happens. Maybe today. Maybe today. Maranatha. But until then, he wants you here. He wants you right here, wherever he's put you on planet Earth, to do this. To be the proclaimer, proclaimer of truth to be the man or woman of God that is going to stand in the gap and stand maybe alone at times. Now, you're unified with other believers, as we're about to see, but you're going to stand for the truth. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I ended a sermon that way. You hold the line. You might remember my beautiful graphic that I had up on the screen. Those of you who were here, just a line across. That's the extent of my artistic rendering. But you hold the line, and the the line is God's word. You don't add to it, you don't take away from it. Anyway, he's sending us into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
He had to die. He had to rise again. Remember, he's bringing, sending the helper as he does, the paraclete. I don't ask for these only. Here's where you get involved, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now that's you. Through time and space, here you are getting told by Jesus himself, I'm praying for you, that you do this. And what does he say? Talking about you, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Trinity right there, the Holy Spirit given to the believer, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Think about the purpose of why you are holding to the truth and you love it, because you're the proclaimer of truth. So the world may believe. Just think about how heady that is. The fact that he picked you, me, this fallen creature that I am, he could proclaim it from the clouds if he wanted to. He could send angels that are much more majestic and better looking than I am. Maybe scarier than I am. Sometimes scary is good too. I, some people ask me about the beard. I said I use this to intimidate the kids and it keeps them in their seats. And, but just imagine what he could use to proclaim the gospel. But he chose you. He wants you to do this. That's the whole purpose of being unified in truth, in love, and collectively as a believer. And you think about 2 Thessalonians, we think about that, that opposite concept. We embrace the truth so that we're saved, and we embrace the truth so others can be saved. That's the idea behind it. We purify ourselves, as Peter would say in 1 Peter 1, and uh, that sanctification purifies our souls, is what we see. All right, let's keep going here. I don't want to spend too much time on this. I mentioned having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Notice that connection. Purify yourself in the truth, connected to brotherly love. You love one another. This is part of how this works and how they're interconnected, truth and love. We see it throughout the entire New Testament, but I got to keep going. Truth that abides in us. That's what's mentioned here. Back to 2 John, now verse 2. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, it doesn't take long to figure out what that means. We know what this means because something that abides forever is eternal. Something that abides forever has to be connected to the Trinity. And what part of the Trinity is connected to you? That's certainly the Holy Spirit, without question. Turn to Colossians chapter 3 with me real quick. And it's going to be up on the screen, but it's small, so I'd like you to go there. Plus, I would like to just show you how Colossians 3 begins. So Colossians chapter 3. So the truth that is in us, that it lives forever. There's an eternality to it. Of course, you're going to make some of these own, your own connections here, which I'm glad that you do. If you're like me, when somebody's teaching, you're thinking about, okay, I, I think I would say this, and I would probably go there, and then all of a sudden the teacher does that, and you're like, hey, all right, must be something connecting us here. And it's that Holy Spirit. So I'm sure some of you are making some of these connections as well. If you're in Colossians 3, I want you to note... And we're going to be in Colossians 3.14. I want you to know what verse 1 says to start this chapter for context. Context matters. This is really important. Paul says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, if you're a believer, if he's saved you, if you're called, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on them, right? Verse 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So that's how he starts this chapter. Talking about salvation and considering what, what's been done to you, what happened to you, the redemption that happened to you, now skip to verse 14. So we have our minds on things that are above. What are those things? What do those things look like? Look at verse 14. And by the way, verse 13 talks about bearing with one another in love. Verse 14, above all, 
these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So just look at these connections. Perfect harmony. Where does the harmony come? It comes from love. The love you have for the word, the love you have for the fellow believer who also loves the word. This is a supernatural thing that binds us together. The Holy Spirit does this. And it's not just the people who are in this room. Okay, we're talking about the global church. We're talking about other believers that you encounter it's one of those cool things when you do encounter a believer that you've just met and there's an instant connection. You've experienced that. You've encountered somebody who knows the Lord, knows the truth, has embraced it, is saved, is redeemed. And I've said this a hundred times, Christendom is a really small world. When you encounter another believer, there's something about that, isn't there? And there's a conversation that's at another level and you understand a little bit. That's the connection. There is a connection, there's a harmony, and love is what binds this all together. It's a very cool thing when we consider this. And by the way, it says, let the word of Christ. That's dealing with all scripture. Is it the gospel? You bet. But this whole book is the gospel. It all points to the Messiah. The Old Testament is critical for us to understand who Christ was. It's written beforehand for us to see the incredible, only God could do gospel that is presented in the New Testament. And then living it out as we go through the epistles. That's what the word of Christ is. We let, it, it, we let it dwell in us richly. And we teach one another that, not just in a setting like this. In personal relationships because of that connection. Look at John 10. You don't have to turn there, but here's what it says. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. That's eternal. I, I've always had a... You look at John 6 and John 10 and when people talk about losing their salvation, I, I, have you ripped those pages out of your Bible? You know, any that the Father has given me, I lose none, John 6 says. Here, no one can snatch them out of my hand, then he doubles down. Nobody can snatch them out of the Father's hand either. What do they do with passages like this? When they think, when an individual thinks, oh, I can lose my salvation. Wow, I I don't think you're reading very carefully. So we know that there is a, a definitive connection here, that we're sealed here. If we go to Ephesians 1, and I'd like you to go there real quickly, Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to see how this is bound together by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1. So we know Jesus said, nobody's going to snatch you out of my hand. Nobody's going to snatch you out of the Father's hand. You're guaranteed forever. But look at Ephesians chapter 1. So we want to connect all these things. Love, truth, binding us together. What is that that's eternal? Remember the eternality of this, the forever that we saw in 2 John chapter 2. 2 John 1 chapter 2. Verse 2, excuse me. Ephesians 1. Look at what it says here. 13 and 14. Verse 11 tells us that we've, been, we've obtained the inheritance through him, through what he's done, his finished work on the cross. In him, verse 13, you also, when you heard the word of truth. Look at that. Isn't it amazing how that just keeps popping off the page? The gospel of your salvation and believed in him, the truth. Look at what happened. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit sealed what's that seal it's a guarantee whose guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory for his glory 
truth, you embraced it, you were then sealed by the Holy Spirit, that is forever, thinking back to 2 John now, forever. The truth is in you forever. Now, we don't just look forward on that. Remember, John 17, it's your job to proclaim it so that people can be saved. But what is inside of you and the truth that binds us all together, the word of God that you're going to use to edify others, it's right there for you. It's there and it's forever. What does God say about that? Well, he says a lot. I'm going to skip Titus 1. God says this about his word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Luke 21, 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What you've been equipped with, what you have inside of you, is like nothing else on planet earth. We got some dazzling things in this world today. When you think about technology, we think about the advancements of man. It's pretty amazing stuff. We've gone to the moon and back. But it pales in comparison to the power that sits right here in your lap. Pales in comparison. Why is that? Because it's eternal. Because it's what saves. Going to the moon is pretty cool. But it didn't save a single person. Didn't redeem a soul. Didn't forgive one sin. I was amazed by it. I'm still amazed by it. Nobody's done it since. But it hasn't saved a single person. What we have in our laps and our responsibility that we have and what flows through us from the Holy Spirit that we were sealed with, guaranteed for, and what God has called us to do in John 17 is eternal. What an incredible thing that we have. What an incredible thing. All right, back to 2 John. I'm making you flip around a lot. But go back to 2 John. 2 John verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace, Paul says, or Peter, John says. I'll get to one of the apostles here. Here's what it says. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us, with us. That's the connection of all the believers from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth and in love. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but this is not an uncommon thing to see in Scripture. As a matter of fact, Paul uses this too. Look at this. He says this in 1 Timothy 1, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Remember, that's that very similar thing that John has with this church. Paul feels that with those he's led to Christ, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Second Timothy 1, almost the same thing. To Timothy, my beloved child, he says this time, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And then Jude, we see it as well, although it's in a different order. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James is the half-brother of Christ. To those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy peace and love be multiplied to you. Here's what MacArthur says about this. John's succession from grace to mercy and then peace marks the order from the first motion of God. I love that, by the way. The first motion of God. I couldn't write like that. To the final satisfaction of man. We read that earlier. Until that glorification happens. Sustained until that hope. That's what he's talking about here. The confines of these threefold blessings are within the sphere of what? Truth and love. So grace, mercy, and peace are are within those things, within truth and love. You can't attain it. You can't understand it, that connection with other believers. Grace, mercy, and peace, the world uses those words. They use the word grace. They use the word mercy, and they use the word peace, but they know nothing of it, do they? They don't. Is there peace anywhere else but, but in the blood of Christ? No. Is there real grace anywhere? I mean, unmerited favor 
for you and me as a wicked sinner anywhere else but the blood of Christ. No, there isn't. And mercy, not getting what you truly deserve, we don't see it anywhere else. It's only in the sphere of truth and love. So that's what we see here. All right, moving on. Walking in truth. Back to 2 John. Verse 4. Verse 4. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children, some of them, walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one who we, ha- we, notice, we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Again, I love the connection here, that he's not just preaching to this woman, he's connecting himself into it. We, us, it's us together. This is the Apostle John. He's a rock star in that world. They wouldn't have used that term, of course. But he was an elite, but that's not the way he viewed himself. Because that's not the way any of us should ever view ourselves. I don't care if you're John MacArthur or a peon like myself. We is a connecting, connecting word here that puts us all in the same spot. Sinners saved by grace, right? That's what we are. Anyway, beautiful thing here. He talks about this new commandment. And of course, what's new about it? Eh, not a whole lot. When we're talking about what's new, we talk about what Jesus put. We know love wasn't a new concept, but the way Jesus loved was a new concept. That, that's different. Without question, that's a whole different animal here. Um, notice what Third John says to Gaius. He says this, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth, and I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He says that same concept again. My children here, he's dealing with other believers, not his actual children. People do use this for their own children, and certainly that's true. There is no greater joy for us, right, when our children are walking in the truth. But he's specifically talking about walking in truth for believers, that that's an, a critical piece. I talked to you about my desire for my students to walk in the truth, and it hurts when, it, when they don't. And we understand that that's such an essential piece. It's, it's, it's this. It's not just knowledge. It's knowledge becoming action, right? It's not just a thought, but that thought becoming practice, right? It's knowing the truth and then doing the truth. That's, that's the animal here that we're dealing with. Ephesians, again, 4, 1 through 3, walking in truth. Paul speaking to the church in Ephesus, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. The word here, and by the way, walk is daily conduct. That's what that means in the Greek, daily living. That's the walk. That's the daily activity, how you conduct yourself in your daily life. Worthy, living in such a way that matches the position in Christ that you've been given. Matches who you now are, that new creation, the new creature. Not what you once were. See, it's really easy for all of us, to go back to what we once were, to what everybody is. That's the, natural, that's the natural way. But living a life that is worthy of the calling, the calling of your salvation, the calling then of your job to be the ambassador for Christ. Two callings here. Your salvation calling, the calling to become the proclaimer of truth. You've got to live a life worthy of that, which you've been called with all humility. So important gentleness patience bearing with one another and what love once again incredible we see that connection every time eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace by the way verse four five and six talks about the oneness of the body of the spirit the oneness of the father the oneness that's connecting us all much like john 17 much like that 
John 13, where's that new commandment start? Well, we know what Jesus says. This is the upper room. New commandment I give you that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, what's that? What's new about it? Well, self-sacrifice, that's what's new. That's what's new. Loving your enemies, giving of yourself, understanding that your life is not your own, considering what Jesus says in John 15, that there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, and you're my friends if you do the Father's will, you do what I say. That's what that is. That's what makes it new, that it's a different style. And that's so new that it's still new, right? That people still see it. If you live a self-sacrificing, humility-driven Christian life, it still marks as different, doesn't it? It just does. Because we live in a a world of, I'm going to get mine. Me first. I'm going to make sure I'm covered. And then I I might give to somebody else. Then I might help. But i got to make sure that I'm covered first. Uh, That's not our way. Our way is, you you see a need, you see that you've been gifted to fulfill that need, you see that you're in that spot, it's time to give. It's time for you. And I'm not just talking money. It could be that. Your time, your efforts, your talents, your gifts. You sacrifice for others. You give because you've been put in that spot. You give because you understand you're going to live a life worthy of the calling. That's why. And we see John say this, or see this again. We just don't have time for it in 1 John 2, 7. And let me end with this. Walking in truth equals obedience. Ooh, boy. That's a tough one. Walking in truth equals obedience. And that's kind of how we've got to end today. Here's what we see. John 14 says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest, manifest myself to him. If we go back to Second John, again, to finish this off, and we connect these, these principles, these doctrines together, look what it says. Okay, so Second John, you're back there to land the plane, and here's what it says. This is love that we walk according to his commandments. Huh. That's what it looks like in a practical way. That self-sacrificing love means you obey him. And in obedience to him, that means you're serving other people. You walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Interesting. So, presented in the upper room, John was there, the rest weren't. But they're all aware That's what he's talking about, the we here. We've all heard this. John's been preaching it to them for 60 years. That you obey the Lord. That you do what he says. Truth and love are intertwined. I want to end here, whoops, at John 15. Go to John 15, and we're going to end in John 15. I know I'm a minute over, but we've got to look at John 15. I referenced it earlier, but I want to close with that. John 15. Give me one more minute, maybe two. John 15. Walking in truth equals, equals obedience, but and I, the slide's not up there. I, you don't need it. It's just the passage. But what I've added to that, if you look at my title here for John 14, John 15 says walking in the truth equals obedience and joy. Look at verse 7. Still talking about, this still the upper room. This is still this long discussion Christ is having with his apostles. By the way, the night before, he's crucified. 
It's how much he loves them. Here's what it says. You abide in me, and my words abide in you. Word, love, notice all the connections. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Let me repeat that. By this my Father is glorified. You want to you live out your Christian walk and say, I really want to glorify the Lord. I really want to bring him glory. Well, he tells you how. Bear fruit. The Holy Spirit that's binding us together, that sealed you, that's your hope. He wants to do this through you. Anyway, bear fruit, so prove, and, and bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Another evidence that you're in Christ. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Again, truth, love. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that, you, that look at this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Hmm. So obeying the Lord, walking in truth, embracing the truth in love, doing what the Bible says on a daily basis isn't just bringing him glory, it brings you joy. See, now we like to pursue joy and all kinds, and we misdefine joy, don't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we like to throw in temporary happiness into joy, but that's not what it is. True joy comes from doing what this book says because you love him, because you've been bound together in him in love and truth. He saved you, and when you do what he says, that is the best times of your life, even if you're in persecution. Best times of your life. Your joy may be full. His joy is full. It brings him glory, and it brings you joy. Beautiful beautiful stuff. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for these words, and we thank you for the truth that is in them. And it binds us together in love. I pray that we are willing to speak hard truth to people, but as believers, we're willing to live it out. We walk in a manner worthy of our calling, that this new commandment to self-sacrificing love, obeying your word and doing it in hard situations, it's what you've called us to, but it's not a burden. Lord, we thank you that you've given us joy in it. We thank you that you provided this for us, that it's the best way of living, that it isn't just life eternal, but it's life to the fullest now. That's because of you and how much you love us, and we give you glory for that. Be with us in the second hour. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.